217 of Manage the Wild. I'm your host, Nick Manson. Have you ever wondered the methods and techniques used to manage a big game population? And it doesn't matter whether it's elephants, wildebeests, moose, bears. There's a whole bunch of techniques, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be a two-parter. I'm going to break it up just a little bit. First, we're going to talk about big game population monitoring techniques, what goes into it, and the reason why they do it. And you can't just use one technique for all animals. You have to break it up. There are several different ways of doing it. Counting methods. How do we count? Oftentimes, you'll see ground-based observations or ground-based surveys where people are driving roads. They're driving certain. Uh, here in Utah, we have what's called rabbit routes. They drive a, rab, a route, and they see how many rabbits they had. I've done multiple surveys, um, birds of prey survey, where we would drive around, and we would stop at a point, randomized point, and we would look and see if we observed any hawks, eagles, whatever, crows, ravens. And we would note that, and then we would drive down the road. Uh, they also have eagle surveys. But in this, we're talking about big game. So some of the surveys that I've been involved in are ground-based surveys where we would just drive up and down a road and glass and try to find as many animals of whatever species we're looking for. Recently, I just did it with a biologist, and we were doing elk surveys. We're doing elk classification, trying to understand how the population's doing before going into a hunt. Also gives the biologist better understanding of what the population's doing to give people who are looking for animals better advice. So we did ground-based observations. Aerial surveys are kind of fun. You can either be in a fixed wing, a plane, or a helicopter. Uh, I prefer the helicopter method because you're able to uh, hover and see a little bit better. You're also able to get a little bit closer to the animals. And depending on the cover that you are above, sometimes fixed wing, it's a little bit harder because you are doing turns around a point where a helicopter allows you to hover a little bit and get a better picture. So there are multiple methods for aerial surveys. Another one that is up and coming that they are improving data, I've seen it done on sage-grouse, is drones. And uh, they use this on feedlots where they are feeding elk or winter feeding grounds for mule deer. They will fly high above them and then they will take a picture and it will help them be able to count all the animals. The ones with sage-grouse are up and coming. There's a company, they're trying to develop an algorithm to tell the computer uh, what animal they're seeing and break it up so they can fly over with um, uh, night vision and be able to uh, tell what the animal is with uh, the thermal, the thermoscope. And so that's up and coming currently isn't that great. I think they have like 20 something percent detection rate, but they are increasing as they're getting better. Another method is radio telemetry, or also known as GPS. This is where animals have collars. Uh, you go out and in the wintertime, uh, usually where we're at, we'll go out in the wintertime and you'll dart an animal or you'll net gun an animal from a helicopter, throw a collar on it. It'll have both radio telemetry as well as GPS radial telemetry will kick on at a certain time so researchers are able to find it 
and then there's also GPS data, and the GPS data will send its data up, you know, once, twice, three times a day, depending on what type of information you're looking at. Uh, if you're trying to get fine-scale information on just an individual, you may have it upload 10 points a day, but the more points you have it uploaded, uh, the less battery life you have. But this is another way of monitoring what a big game population is doing. Biologists will use this method to help them do their elk classification. Because if you have some collars out there on some elk, then it's easier for you to find elk to go out and classify and see what the makeup is the of the population is. Uh, here's another one uh, that I had a professor who was doing research on ocelots, their cats, and he was in Costa Rica doing research on ocelots, and they were doing DNA analysis, but it's also been done elsewhere. Uh, there are studies with wolverines where they'll take these posts, put some hair catchers, whether they are hooks or nails or something, and it will pull hair off and they will do DNA samples. And so they are going out and doing a bunch of those. Uh, another one that I've been involved in is coyotes. Um, the state of Utah does a bounty. And so they're trying to understand the connectedness of all the coyotes within the state of Utah and see how closely connected they are. And so they were doing uh, DNA and teeth samples on those. And that helps you find out the animals that are in the area. The wolverine, they would obviously come up to the scratch post, whether they hung bait or whatever, and they would take the hair samples and see what predators were in that area, looking to identify whether there was wolverines or not. Hunting harvest data is another one to be able to help you understand the makeup of your population. Uh, deer check stands uh, or stations are all across the United States. Some are mandatory, some are not. Uh, the ones I've been involved in, they are not mandatory, but they are highly recommended because they can come in, take a measure of your, measurement of your deer. They're taking measurement of the antlers. They're looking at the maturity, the age group that's coming in. But they're also looking at that brisket and making sure uh, how fat. It gives them better understanding of the fat uh, data going into winter. If you got a lot of deer with a lot of brisket fat that's very thick, you know, 10 mils, whatever, millimeters, then you know your population's doing really good. But if you come in with just two or three millimeters of fat, you know, you're probably going to have a rough winter. And so all of this information is super important. And getting a lot of people involved in collecting this data. When I was in college, the biologists used to bring a group of hunters and they would go out and classify as many deer as possible before their antlers started dropping in February and March. So we would go out in January and we would look and try to identify all the males, all the females, and then uh, count fawns as well, or yearlings. And we would like to collect that data to help us understand what that population's doing. And so it gives us a pretty good understanding of how they did going through winter. Uh, if you collect that data too early though, um, you still have the rest of winter to go through and some of the air, the area that I live in, some of the challenges they face are not January, but it's March and April and antlers are dropping by then. So you have a harder time, uh, seeing the makeup of that population. 
once they get all this data, they collect all this data and they start putting it into the models. But the problem with models is they just have challenges. There is problems built into these models. One is the quality of the data. And I talked about getting people involved. The quality of the data coming in could be not that great. So if you are out classifying and you obviously know which one's the males and which one's the females, one on deer or elk, one has antlers, one doesn't. But then where you start introducing problems with your data is whether it's a fawn or a yearling or is it a calf or is it a cow and you start to mix the two because a fawn and a yearling is going to be hard to tell the difference by depending on the distance. I had a situation where they call it growing fawns. I went out to an area and I classified everything as much as I could classify. And when I came back, I'd almost doubled the amount of fawns. And that's because I was looking at animals so far away, I had a hard time telling whether they were fawns or yearlings, and I would just classify them as fawns. So you have some uh, biased data or you have problems. And then there's complexity. The big game populations, you can't tell them what to do. So you could go out and classify, but then all of a sudden the population will get up and move and leave an area, especially if you're in a state. Like you can track the movement throughout from northern Utah down to southern Utah and eastern to western. But when you have a population that all of a sudden moves from out of state into state or into state out of state, so there's some complexity there. You want to issue a certain number of permits to manage that population. But if they step over an imaginary line, the border between Utah and Idaho, then you're going to have a really tough time managing that population. You're going to issue 2,000 tags, but all the animals have now moved into Idaho. So there is some complexity. Behavioral changes, it, it, there's always going to be changes, and it's based upon season, weather, as well as disturbance. If you have a lot of disturbance, a lot of building, or disturbance such as what they're facing right now, bringing cattle and sheep off the range, there's that disturbance that's also going to alter their behavior. And then if you have a fire in one area versus uh, no change for 30 years in another area, they're going to move to the fire area if they're elk, and that's going to alter their behavior and the different things they're going to do. And then another huge one is budget constraints. Now, the state of Utah uh, for the last 10 years or so has been just dumping a lot of money into collars. But they've now got all the collars they want, and so they're starting to pull back on that funding. But you talk to other states, and they have a third of the collars that Utah does. Nevada has a few less. I've talked to people from Nevada that – they are having a harder time getting that funding. And so budget constraints, where are you putting your money? How much money do you have coming in? Those can lead to constraints in modeling and the way you're going to monitor your population. Let's say you want to go in and fly on elk multiple times to get a good population count, but you don't have any money. You're going to be constrained. And so you're going to get one, popu one population count every three years versus one every year or one every other year. And those are going to be some of the challenges they face. All right, in closing, big game population monitoring is multidisciplinary. 
it takes a whole bunch of techniques, not just GPS collars, not just flying, but also takes modeling. There's challenges that we talked about in modeling. Data may not be that great. Animals may move. Seasons may change. Weather may be bad. And so all of that creates complexity in your monitoring of big game populations. All right, you guys, thanks for watching the video. Hope you guys have a great day. Don't forget to subscribe and share it and stay connected and stay wild.